Now, I'm glad you could be here for part three of this series that we're calling, What Would Jesus Undo? And if you think, oh, part three, I missed part one and two. Is this like walking in halfway through the movie? Uh, let me give you a little hint of what we've been talking about. Um, back in the late 80s, early 90s, there was a very small craze that took place in the church. It was a big craze in the church, but when you look at crazes, uh, it was a small one probably. And it was the, what would Jesus do? Every kid who went to church camp, who was in a youth group, had either a bracelet or a shirt or a hat or some form of apparel that said WWJD on it. What would Jesus do? And the point of those was to help kids, students, keep in mind as they went throughout their day and they had to make decisions to ask, what would Jesus do in this moment? When someone treats them horribly, what would Jesus do? When, when you know, they get to that moral gray moment where they think, okay, what should I do here? What would Jesus do? Now, we're asking a very similar sounding question in this series, but it's a very different question, and that is, what would Jesus undo? Are there any things that Jesus wants to remove or take out of our lives? Are the, have we become, uh, begun to accept behaviors, thoughts, perspectives that Jesus would never accept, that Jesus never wanted his followers to take on? And if you are not a Christian and you're here today, i got to tell you, this series isn't really for you. It's not tailor-made for you. I am glad that you're here because you get to kind of sit with us as we pull back the curtain and look at what's really going on in the lives of Christians. Because we are taking honest looks at tough things and saying, where do we as believers fail? Where are we falling short? What behaviors, practices do we need to repent of, confess, and seek forgiveness in Christ? Um, today's topic is going to be a fun one that uh, everybody's dealt with at some point, but let me cover the other two first. In the first week of this series, we talked about spiritual indifference, how we can come to church and we can sit through the, uh, sit and sing through songs and, and listen to the sermon and we can pray for one another, but yet outside of this one, maybe two hours a week in church, we don't really think about God that much, that our faith doesn't really shape how we live and act and go about our day. It's not something that really means a lot to us. We're kind of spiritually indifferent. Outside of this one hour a week, there's not a whole lot that separates us from non-believers. Um, the second week, last week, we talked about hollow worship, how we can come into a service like this, and we can do all the things that we do in a service like this, and never once worship God, because we're too busy thinking about how everything works for me. I did like that song. I didn't like that song. Ooh, that sermon was good. Ooh, that sermon was bad. Oh, I can't sing too loud. Somebody might hear me. And when we turn the focus of what we're doing here inward, it kills worship. It takes away all the meaning and significance of worship because worship is meant to be an outward flowing adoration of our God. Now today we're talking about something, like I said, really fun. Everybody loves talking about this one. Probably, this is probably number two to money. Everyone loves talking about money. Um, hypocrisy. Jesus wants to undo Jesus wants to remove our hypocrisy. And when I say the word hypocrisy, most of you immediately have something that comes to mind. Most of you immediately have someone that comes to mind. Uh, one of the best stories of hypocrisy and an immediate reckoning uh, that I ever heard uh, came from a pastor named Craig Rochelle. He's a pastor in Oklahoma. I heard this a few years ago. I think I might have even told you here before. Some of you probably heard it. Um, he's a pastor of a church in Oklahoma called Life Church. Okay, remember that. It's important for the story. Life Church. And on his way to work one day, he pulls out onto a four-lane highway. Two lanes going one way, two going the other. So he gets to the stop, getting her to pull out on his road, and he looks. And there's a car coming, but he thinks, I got time to pull out and get going to speed so that guy doesn't have to, like, slam on his brakes. 
So he pulls out, and he said almost immediately he realized that he had misjudged how fast the other car was going. He said the other guy was speeding quite a bit for that road, but he saw as soon as he pulled out, that guy was going to just like roll up on him, and that car had to kind of slam on the brakes, and they laid on the horn. They were so mad that he pulled out, and he said, you know what? They're speeding, but I did pull out in front of them. And so he kind of put his, looked up in the mirror and did the, you know, the international head down, hand up, I'm sorry, you know, that was my fault, kind of driving, you know, head nod that you can do. You'd think they'd have like eight horns on our cars by now, one for each different emotion, like a, like I'm sorry horn or something, I don't know. But all he had was the head down, hand up kind of thing. And so he, you know, he thinks, okay, well, it was my fault, I'll own up to it. But that wasn't enough for the guy who he just cut off, and so that guy, floors it, gets in the other lane, blows by him, and gives him the finger as he's going by. And he said, whatever, you know, people can entertain their road rage all they want. He said he was going to just, you know, move on with his life until as that guy passed, he saw something on his bumper, a Life Church bumper sticker. He said, not only has he been to my church, but to put a bumper sticker on, your, on, your, on my car or your car, that means he goes to my church. Okay? That means he likes my church enough to advertise to the world that he is a Christian who comes to my church. And he thought, I don't need to get to work on time. I'm going to be a pastor in this moment. And so he ditched his trip to work, and he sped up and followed the guy. Which, if you've ever been in a situation like that when maybe cooler heads were not prevailing and you were mad about something and somebody cutting you off and you see them trailing you, you're just getting madder and madder. And so he keeps up with this guy until they get to a red light, and he pulls up next to him, and he starts to roll down his window. Well, that guy's looking for a fight. He sees the window coming down, notice that car falling, and so he starts rolling down his window, and he's already yelling obscenities out the window. And so finally, Craig leans out the window, says, hey, buddy, God is good. And the guy just went, all the time, pastor, all the time. And it's like, beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, I love, I want something like that to happen to me. I'll, call, I'll do it to any one of you out of love and grace, you know. Um, but hypocrisy is often the number one complaint that non-Christians have about Christians. You hear it all the time. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. I can't tell you how many pastors and leadership things I've listened to where pastors had a conversation with a non-Christian and they said, you know, you seem okay, but man, I don't want to go to church because they're just a bunch of hypocrites. And if you ever come across a non-Christian who seems very angry about church, oftentimes they will have a story about a time they went to church and encountered somebody that they would have labeled a hypocrite. Um, it'll be something to the effect of, I went to church there for a while, and he was a leader there, and he was very pious and very holy looking at church, but then I had uh, the misfortune of running into him in, a, in the business world. I had to do a deal with his company, and I saw how he treated his employees like dirt. And I learned that he would do anything to close the deal, whether it was lie, cheat, steal, whatever. He would do anything to add some money in the books, and I thought, if that's what Christians are, I don't want to be a part of them. Or you'll see um, somebody in uh, a department store, and she's got a cross necklace on, but she treats the workers of that store like they're dirt. And it's like, again, if that's a Christian, I don't want to be any part of it. People find that distasteful. And don't get me started about televangelists. Um, they're not all bad, okay? I will say this. I don't think Charles Stanley, if you've ever seen Charles Stanley, I don't think he's ever asked for money once in all his years of broadcasting. Um, he just, you know, preaches the word with that Nice, deep, southern voice. It's smooth as silk. You know, that guy. Um, but a lot of them, it feels like a sham. They're always wanting money. They, they feel like they've turned um, 
the gospel and church into a, a buy and sell thing where mainly the goal is for you to give them money. You probably heard the story this week, some of you did at least, of a, uh, the televangelist who asked his viewers for, I think it was $54 million for a new private jet so he can take the gospel to the world because he thought, well, I forget, Ben was telling me, he read the whole thing and watched some videos on it, that he, um, he wanted to avoid the evils of flying commercial, you know, the evils of getting in the way of commercials. So he needs a $54 million jet. And man, that stuff just reeks to people. They see that like, come on now. That's, you got to be kidding me. A $54 million jet, that's the most effective way to get Jesus across the world. Um, probably the best quote I've ever heard about hypocrisy uh, came from a guy named Brennan Manning. Uh, he wrote a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. If you've ever heard of it, wonderful book. I will say up front, Brennan Manning was a hypocrite. His life was a, a kind of a ping-pong back and forth between Christian theologian slash writer and functioning, sometime mostly non-functioning alcoholic. His life was a series of, of write a book, have everything go off the rails, lose his, his marriage has fallen apart because of his drinking. I mean, so he's not a great, I don't, I don't recommend this quote to you because um, he was a great guy, but his writing at times was incredibly on point. He said this about hypocrisy. He said, the single greatest cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and then walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. And watch this next sentence. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. That is what I think is one of the greatest hindrances to the spread of the gospel in our world is that we as Christians say one thing and live another way. And um, let me get to where we can like, kind of understand what hypocrisy is and isn't before we get too far into this, um, because some people have a really strict definition of hypocrisy, and that's how they can look and say, all Christians are hypocrites, which if, if you go with like the most strict definition of hypocrisy, where it's you say one thing and you live another way, yes, every Christian is a hypocrite. Because every Christian is constantly proclaiming a perfect standard that Jesus has laid before us. And we are failing to live up to that standard. Every Christian. We are never going to be able to fully practice what we preach. But I don't call that hypocrisy. I just call that sinfulness. I just call that this side of heaven. And so in our lives as Christians, yes, we are going to be a little bit hypocritical by that standard. But that's not what I'm talking about. Hypocrisy truly comes in when you create a facade, an illusion, when you start putting on a show or, or create some sort of a mask to hide your sin. When you are intentionally putting out a front of being more spiritual, more holy, more sin-free than you really are. That is hypocrisy. In fact, um, Craig Rochelle, who I mentioned earlier, he's, he has a great definition of hypocrisy. He says hypocrisy is the gap between what we show and who we are. It's a gap between what you project to the world, what you show to the world, and what's really going on in your heart. And there's a lot about hypocrisy in the New Testament, tons. And I'm just going to give you a little spoiler alert. None of it's good. There's not a single verse in the Bible that says, man, those hypocrites got it going on. There's none of that. In fact, they're all the opposite. Um, but here's the thing you've got to understand. The, the, the New Testament was written in Greek. And the Greek word that we translate hypocrisy is this Greek word, hypocrites. You can even see hypocrite in the word, hypocrites. And it literally means actor, pretender, one who puts on a mask 
for a role or to, to perform a show or something of that sort. It, it's not necessarily a bad word in and of itself, but it was kind of hijacked to represent people who figuratively put on masks to hide who they really are, to put a show on for the world, to appear more holy, more religious, more sanctified than they truly were. And I think we've got to be honest here and say that hypocrisy is a plague on the church. There are a few things that limit our effectiveness in the mission that Christ has handed us, like hypocrisy. And I would, I would very near guarantee that there are hypocrites in the room today. And some of you got nervous that I said that, okay? And chill out, okay? I'm not going to be like, and it's you and you and you. I'm not going to do that. I don't know. Let me say, I don't know who the hypocrites are. I just know that the temptation to hide your sin is so strong that there are definitely people here who are doing this. Um, I try not to give in to that perception that there's a huge chasm between minister and congregation, okay? Some people try to do that and lift this minister up and say, oh, they're supposed to be so holy and they're, they're so sinless and, and righteous. And ministers are people too. Uh, the weirdest thing to me is when I became a minister and I felt so the same, okay? I got hired at Loami and it's like, I'm still a mess. I'm still me and I'm still sin and I still think things I shouldn't think and all. And, and yet people started treating me different, pastor, Reverend, I get that one a lot. I want to. No one's ever called me Reverend except in an obituary when it's like the funeral will be performed by Reverend Anthony Bliss, you know. So, but but people start treating me different. But if there was one place I would say that there's that, that I have it harder than a, a congregation, I would say it was with this temptation towards hypocrisy, because there is this perception that that ministers they got to be perfect. That they can't have real struggles and sin in their life because then they're not capable of being in ministry. And so there's this temptation that I feel to project something that's better than who I am. And that temptation is strong. The, the, the fear of people finding out who you are, that can be paralyzing. And some of you are trapped, gripped in that fear, hiding something away, fearful of the day that you get caught. But somehow secretly inside, you hope you get caught because it's exhausting to keep up the act for so long. And so what we do is we kind of create for ourselves masks. And these were the creepiest masks I could find on the internet. Okay, but they, they'll do the trick for us. If you don't, don't be too distracted by how creepy they are. You have Christians who come to church. Everything's great. Everything's fine. Everything's wonderful. It's all smiles. Praise Jesus. Sing it, hands up, clapping along with the songs. Not many of us do either of those things, but you get the point. Um, put on the smile, right? And that before you came to church, you were, you know, saying horrible things to your spouse, cruel things to your kids, griping because someone was making you late, and, and yet here you walk in the door, everything's great, everything's fine, I love Jesus, and it's an act, it's fake. Or you come in here and you say, hey, everything's going great, everything's awesome, fine, and then you start gossiping about your church family the second you get a quiet moment with somebody. I'm so holy, I'm so great. Did you hear what, she, what he said? Did you see what she was wearing? Or you come in here and you act like everything's fine and secretly you're, you're dealing with an addiction that is ruining your life and it's got you in a trap that you can't get out of and, and you can't deal with it because you're too busy putting on the mask, putting on the show. The other mask I see Christians wear all the time is the, the mask that looks very holy and very concerned. This is my concerned mask. I know it looks very upset, but let's go with concern. It's a face of concern. This is where we pretend to be concerned about all the, the struggles in the world when really we don't care. 
This is when, you know, oh, those poor children, that mission that our church supports, they're, they're struggling. Oh, we should do something about that, but we won't. I'm con- I look concerned, but I'm not, I don't really care. Oh, I'm so sorry that's happening in your life. I will pray for you. Do you know how many times Christians have said, I will pray for you? And not only did they not pray for them, they forgot that person was a person until the next Sunday when they saw him again. Oh, I wonder what's going on in their life. I'll, but I'll pray for you because I'm so concerned about your life. But we're not. Um, you'll have, when we uh, talk about our mission for Christ in the world, and we talk about how uh, the, the spiritual reality that people without Jesus are going to hell, because that's what Jesus taught himself and it's taught by every other writer in the New Testament. The people without Christ are going to hell. Oh my gosh, that's so terrible. We should care about the world. We should reach out for the world with Jesus. But secretly, with, outside of this mask, you don't care about non-Christians. In fact, you hate them because they live a life of, of craziness compared to your religious, pious, moral standards. And not only do you not want them here, you don't want them to be saved because you think they should go to hell because they deserve it. You know how many Christians you can just sense a true hatred for the world and not the compassion and love that Christ came into the world with? We wear these masks all the time because we've got to pretend that we are someone that we are not. We know, how to, we know what we should look like, but rather than doing the hard work of letting Jesus transform our hearts and admitting our sin, we would rather hide it away and pretend. And again, like I said, there are not any, any good words about hypocrites in the New Testament. Jesus himself has some very, very harsh words for hypocrites. In fact, if you want to go ahead and grab a Bible, we'll be in Matthew chapter 23. Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. Um, Matthew 23. We'll start uh, verse 25. If you want, grab one of those black Bibles, it's page 829. Now, in Matthew 23, we come to what theologians call the seven woes. Not like, whoa, that was awesome, but like, woe to you. It's very sad, okay? Seven woes, W-O-E. And there's seven times where Jesus, in a sense, says, woe to you. I would hate to be you. It's so sad and upsetting for you. And he's talking to scribes and Pharisees. Scribes were like uh, religious lawyers, and the Pharisees were the priests. He says, woe to you. And six out of the seven woes, he says, woe to you. And he calls them hypocrites while he's doing it. So, uh, yeah, he's calling them out for projecting this spirit or this idea that they are so generous and so pious and so religious, but that's not who they are on the inside. And we're only going to look at two of the woes. So. But Jesus paints a really amazing picture of what hypocrisy is in these few verses. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean also. Next one. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I love these two pictures. He does a great job of kind of giving us the idea of how being dirty on the inside while projecting this cleanliness on the outside is absolutely worthless. And I love the idea of the cup. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been there, but I've been in this situation where I go up and I grab a cup out of the counter, or out of the uh, cabinet, excuse me. I don't look, I don't give it a deep inspection. It's in the cabinet, it must be clean, you think. 
fill it full of milk because, you know, milk's a good one because you can't see the bottom of the glass. And so you drink, I'll drink that glass of milk, and it's only on that last final swig after I've drank all that milk that I'll see something from, like, last night's dinner just, like, caked on the inside corner in there and something that the dishwasher, instead of blowing it out, it actually, like, just, like, melded it into the cup, you know? And it's like you see that thing at the bottom of the glass, and it's like, ugh, you want to boomerang all the milk back out. And it's like, that's so incredibly gross. But the outside of the cup looked fine, and even the rim, you know, as I got it out, I could see into the cup a little bit. That was clean. So like 95% of the cup was clean, but that teeny gross bit on the inside, deep down in there, that ruins all of it. And so I'm going to get take that cup, and I'm going to get a rag, and I'm going to dig that gunk out with soap and water with my hand and a washcloth, and then I'll probably put it back in the dishwasher and push the sanitize button just for good measure. Because I don't want to be grossed out by that again. I want to make sure I got it all. I've, I've been there. And then he says, he compares them to whitewashed tombs. Uh, there was a particular Jewish festival that, um, before it started, there would be people that would walk around and whitewash, paint white, the tombs. Because to Jewish culture, touching anything uh, that a dead person had touched would render you unclean, unable to participate in the festival, unable to participate in anything worshipful to God. And so people didn't want to accidentally stumble upon these tombs. And it wouldn't like cemeteries like we have now. Like there would be tombs scattered here, there, and yonder. And some of them would be kind of worn down over time. It might look just like a rock and you go sit on it and not realize that it's actually a tomb. And so they would go around and whitewash these tombs so people would see them, steer clear of them, and they would be able to participate in the Jewish festival. Now, the consequence of whitewashing it all is because it made them pretty. You ever put a fresh coat of paint on anything? I mean, you can have an old chair that barely sits up, but you put a fresh coat of paint on it, it looks pretty sharp. And so people would go, man, these tombs, they look so pretty this time of year as people paint them for these festivals. But what's inside? Death and decay. I mean, we have that in our cemeteries. You have some uh, headstones that aren't headstones. They're giant statues of angels with wings, and the detail on them is mind-blowing. I mean, they're, they're art. You have mausoleums where all of the details on the outside are amazing and breathtaking. But no matter how pretty it is on the outside, again, inside is death and decay. And Jesus is saying that's hypocrisy. You can clean it up as much as you want on the outside, but that doesn't change for a second what's on the inside. So changing on the outside is ridiculous. It does not help. What we've got to do is get to the heart of the matter. We've got to dig deeper than that. That's why he tells them, you need to wash the inside of the cup first. Don't just wipe around the outside and get what you can see you know, scrub some lipstick off the rim, there might be stuff really down deep in there. And, and it doesn't matter if you get the outside sparkling. If that inside's gross, it ruins the facade, it ruins the outside, it makes the whole thing unclean. And the same is true of you and me. The, the facade, whatever, we might be able to fool people, but we are not fooling God. And so we have to go deeper than that, but yet we think we need these masks. We think we've got to have this mask. And some of you, maybe you like the mask because you feel a little sense of superiority and maybe some spiritual or moral high ground because of, of the way people look at you and think about you. And so you're just not ready to give up that power. And so you need the mask. You can't admit it because that would bring down or diminish maybe the, the power and authority you have in the lives of people around you. Some of you, you wear this mask out of fear. You think you need it because you're so scared of what people would think if they knew the real you. You're so scared of what people would think if they knew the thoughts that were buried in the depths of your heart. You're worried about what it would cost you to admit what is going on in the true depths of who you are. And then some of you, you wear the mask simply because you like the idea of going to heaven, but you like your sin too much to give it up. 
And so you wear the mask because you know certain things aren't acceptable in the church world. And so you use the mask to let you keep on sinning. And again, this is a joke. No matter your best, your best act, your best play on the day. I mean, I know all of us do this to an extent, right? We all come to church and act a little better than we are. I bet I've heard a cuss word in this building on a Sunday morning like twice since I've been here. You walk out these doors on, a, on any other day of the week, I hear a lot more cuss words just in the store. You go to Walmart and you hear how people talk sometimes, right? But in here, everybody, everybody you know. And if I were naive, I'd think, well, no one in my church has ever cussed, ever. I've never heard it before. You hit your thumb with a hammer, you've cussed. I know that. I'm not dumb, right? <laughs> but your best facade, it's as flimsy and as nonsensical as this little cheap mask is that I got off of Amazon. Doesn't matter. It's not doing you any good. And all it's doing is hurting you because it's keeping your sin alive. In fact, I think hypocrisy exists kind of in its own category of sin. Not that it's like worse or it makes you more dirty, but here's what hypocrisy does. Hypocrisy is a sin that's sole purpose is to keep you sinful. Its sole purpose is to make sure that you can keep on sinning. It's a protective barrier to keep your sin safe and warm and protected so that the forgiveness and grace and mercy and transforming power of God cannot get at it and remove it from your life. And so if you are hiding sin, it means you're holding sin. Every time you hide your sin, I guarantee you what you were really doing is you were holding on to your sin. Whether you, you like that sin or whether you're just scared of what people will think if they knew it was there, you're protecting it. You're keeping it around in your life. And as Christians, what we are supposed to do, when we become a Christian, we let our old self before Christ die. That old self that had thoughts and behaviors that were an abomination to God, Jesus allows that to die and be buried and he gives us a new life. In, in him, a new life where we are able to live a better way. Again, not perfect, we're all a work in progress, but it's a life where we can actually move past some of the sins that have gripped onto us for years and decades, and yet when we hide our sin, what we are saying to him is, I prefer that dead thing to whatever new thing you have for me. I am more gripped by fear and the opinions of others or the sin that I love than I am by the grace and mercy of my God. And we are protecting the sin that we should be killing by our daily walk with Christ. And as you look at the verses that talk about hypocrites in the New Testament, I'm just going to give you the heads up. You don't find any ounce of tolerance for hypocrites. There's no verse that, that gives them any wiggle room at all. No grace, no mercy. It's woe to you hypocrites. Woe to you hypocrites. Shame on you hypocrites. But when we ditch the mask and we admit that we are sinners. When you drop the mask and you say, I'm a sinner just like everybody else. I have thoughts in my head, desires in my heart that should not be there. I have said and done things I should not have done and said. I am a sinner and I am struggling with this. I am a sinner. God, help me by your grace. When you admit your sin, confess your sin, then there is unlimited grace. No tolerance for the show. No tolerance for the mask, but unlimited grace for the one who takes it off and admits their need for Christ. Now, some of you, you will hear all of this, and you will keep your mask on. You will ignore what I've said, you will go out to lunch, and you will forget what I've said by 3 o'clock today. Because, again, I don't know your reasoning, fear, whatever it is, you're, you're going to hang on to that mask, you're going to keep your projection, you're not going to listen. I know that's how this works. 
But some of you, this could be a day that is incredibly significant in your spiritual walk with Christ. This could be a huge day for you where you finally find freedom as you admit, I am a sinner. I need Christ's help. I've been playing the part. I've been coming to church. I've been doing the things that make me look spiritual. But deep down, I've been hiding and protecting my sin, and I'm done with it. And some of you, you've been doing that, again, out of fear. What would people think? Oh, no. And that becomes exhausting. And all it does is lead to deeper and deeper levels of shame, which give you more and more reason to keep on the mask. But what if you let it go? What if you realized how useless it really was? And that, yeah, you were fooling us, but you weren't fooling God. And if you keep the mask on, I'm going to tell you what you're doing. You're going to pretend yourself to hell. You're going to fake your way to eternal separation from God and eternal regret because you were this close. This close. So get rid of the mask. I know it can be scary. Some of you are nervous right now because you know you need to. You're antsy right now because you know you need to. But you're terrified because what would people think? And let me just admit, there might be consequences to you taking the mask off. There's always consequences with sin. That's just the nature of sin. Sin is that nasty. That's why Jesus hates it and wants to get it out of your life because it tears us up. So yes, there might be consequences. But I promise you, when you take that mask off, what you will find is more grace and mercy than you ever thought possible on the other side. Because even though Jesus has no tolerance for the mask, he has unlimited grace for the sinner who's willing to admit it and seek his forgiveness. And so some of you, you need to take off the mask. And if you need a place to do that, if you're kind of scared to admit it, um, let me give you a safe place to do that. You can come and talk to me or Ben, and you think, well, the last person I want to admit my sin to is a minister. Let me tell you why I'm the best person to admit your sin to. I have literally heard it all. And nothing you say is going to shock me. Nothing you say is going to make me go, oh, how dare you? A beer? Oh, no. A cigarette? How dare you? And none of that's going to, I've heard it all. I've heard about the adulteries. I've heard about the addictions. I've heard about the betrayals. I've heard about the lies. I've heard it all. You will not shock me. You won't shock Ben either. He's heard more than I have. But what you will find is people who will hold you accountable, who will praise you for getting rid of the mask, help you take whatever steps you need to take going forward, and we will guarantee you that you are still loved and on the receiving end of God's grace and mercy. So if you need someone to talk to, don't let the day pass. Don't let the week pass. Come and talk to me or Ben. That's what we're here for. If he's a little scattergrained, it's because of VBS and grant him grace. He will be a human again in two weeks, one week recovery time after VBS. But let me just tell you, it's time, time to close the gap between what you show and who you are. And there is unlimited freedom, unlimited grace and mercy on the other side. And you can do it. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for these really tough words that Jesus has for hypocrites. We need to hear them because it is very easy to become a hypocrite. It is very easy to be led by fear, by pride, into projecting something better than what we truly are. But if we were the people that we projected to be, we would have no need for your salvation or your grace. You came because we were a mess. You sent your son into this world because we were, were trapped in sin, overcome by sin. And you wanted to set us free. What a tragedy it is that too often we would choose bondage to sin over true freedom that comes through you 
because we're scared of what people think or we're holding on to some false sense of power or because we, we think our sin is better than your freedom. But that is not true. The truth is that the new life you offer to us is always better. It's always better than whatever life of sin we've gotten ourselves into. So Father, I pray that you would fill those of us in this room who are ready to get rid of the mask. You'd fill us with courage to take that step. You'd fill us with courage to finally take off the mask and admit that we've been living a lie so that we can find your grace and mercy. And for those of us that might be on the receiving end of some of those confessions, I pray that you would fill us with compassion and empathy and a heart of grace knowing that we are all sinners here. We've all been trapped by sin. We've all been lost in some addictive pattern that needed to go away and and those of us who are free from some of that stuff it's only by your grace and mercy so let us be a church that confesses and a church that hears confessions well thank you for this freedom that comes only in christ it's in his name we pray amen